Libby. And I'm Farron. And this is the tip of the iceberg. It brings stuff up and you feel raw and you feel tired, but that's how you feel. Hello and welcome back to our podcast. Um, this is Farron. I'm flying solo today without my trusty sidekick, Livy. Um, and we have a really exciting episode for you guys. So it's Sexual Assault Awareness Month. That's um, what April is. So it's a big month for us at SAFE. And um, we have really loved being able to do some survivor stories on the podcast. Um, it's been a really, really cool experience. And we um, have a sexual assault survivor who is with us today to do um, a survivor story and to tell her story, which I think is going to be really, really, really powerful and great. Um, and so she is on the phone with me. She's not here in person because she doesn't live in, in Laramie anymore. Um, and so, you know, I guess it's important to kind of give a trigger warning right off the bat because um, some of the things that we're going to hear are probably, you know, a little triggering and upsetting, especially for survivors. Um, and also, I think it's really important for me to say that when survivors tell their story, it's important to me that they're able to tell it exactly as they want to tell it and how they want to tell it. And so, um, you know, it's possible that she might, you know, name certain people that she worked with throughout this process or um, have, you know, her own reaction that she has every right to have. And so we don't censor ever any survivors that that speak on our podcast. And so um, that's just really important for us to, to put out there, too. So um, I think it's important to just jump right in. And I am just going to introduce I'm just going to introduce you, Aaron, and then you can just kind of take over and we'll just have a, a, a conversation. Um, so um, we're going to be talking to Aaron today and um, she came to us and worked with us several years ago and has been so inspirational to so many survivors and advocates and is just a beautiful, wonderful soul. And I'm so honored that she is um, willing to talk to us. So, um, yeah. So Erin, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for the introduction and thank you for having me on the podcast. I'm a fan, so it's exciting to be a part of this and to be able to share my story. Well, we are really excited. Um, I know that you have shared your story in the past, um, and that's also been really inspiring for a lot of people because you're so brave to to be so honest and share it. So we're really thankful that you, um, that you wanted to do that today. So. Thanks. Me too. It's funny. I'm a little nervous because I haven't shared my story in this way in a while. Um, but I'm excited. I'm ready. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, I think it would just help to kind of um, start out by, and you don't have to talk about any more than you, obviously, than you want, you know that, but kind of start out by telling listeners about you and um, your story, um, however it is you want to tell it. Yeah, so um, I'm Erin. 
Um, I'm from Northern Colorado, excuse me, Northern California and Wyoming. And I lived in Wyoming for about 10 years. And that is where my assault happened. So I had turned 21 in December. And then March, I had a uh, bachelorette shower for a friend. And I want to just stop right there because whenever survivors tell their story, there's always this question of, oh, how much was she drinking? What was she wearing? And just to squash that conversation right away, um, I'm not much of a drinker, and I never have been. So I was sober this whole time. Um, so proceeding forward. Mm -hmm. um, bachelorette party, we were having a lot of fun. Um, you know, going around to all the different bars in town, just dancing. Um, and we get to the buck. And, you know, that's usually everyone's last stop. And it was late, and I saw a guy who I had dated in the past, and we, you know, made a googly eyes at each other and decided to go home with each other. So I said goodbye to my girlfriends, and I went home with my ex and this random person who was hanging along with him. Um, so we go back to his house, and... You know, we had consensual sex, and then I went to the bathroom, and I came back, and there was another girl in the bed, and there was not a lot of communication going on. Um, and I later found out that it was not because he wanted to have a threesome. It was because this girl was very uncomfortable uncomfortable about the man hanging out in the living room. Um, hmm. So, But I didn't know this at the time, so I got very angry, and I went to the living room, and I just sat down, and it was late, and it, you know, it was cold out, and I had, like, heels on, so like, okay, how am I going to get home? Trying to kind of game plan, and this guy, he told me his name was Chris. He, first thing he does is opens up his his shirt or whatever a little bit and shows me this gun and says, if anybody's giving you problems, you know, I got them. And I was like, what the hell? Like, put your gun away. No. Um, so things kind of go on, and I'm very distressed because I'm feeling hurt and wanting to get home. Um, I asked, you know, my ex's roommate to take me home, but he's doing whatever. So he's not taking me home. So eventually Chris is like, well, come to my house, and I'll give you a ride home after that. And I'm just like, okay, I have finally someone's going to help me get home. So we start on our walk, and it was a very long walk. He told me it was a short walk, and it was not. It was a very long walk. And on the way, I remember the initial sink in my gut was when he started saying, I do you a favor, you do me a favor. Um, and I wasn't super sure what he was alluding to at that point, but I knew it didn't feel good. Um, so finally we arrive at his apartment and he tried to have sex with me and I told him no. Um, multiple times, multiple ways, and it led to him putting the gun to the back of my head and raping me. Um, and then afterwards, he asked if I was hungry and if I wanted a sandwich, and I politely declined because I wanted to barf all over him. Yeah. Um, and this, the next period of time was really such a blur and such an in-between time, you know, we 
I went and like sat on the couch and I thought about how I could get out. I was trying to figure out how I can leave, how I can get away from this man. Um, I just, I knew a girl who lived literally across the street and I imagined myself just like running over to her house and him coming outside and just shooting me in the middle of the road because he knew what he did to me and he knew he didn't want me to tell anybody. So I decided not to run to my friend's house and try and act as calm as possible. Um, eventually, you know, probably two or three hours later, he was able to ask his roommate to use his truck and drove me home. And I had him drop me off about a block away from my house. And um, I remember giving him a side hug and saying bye because I did not want him to think I was going to do anything. Um, at that point, my life it still felt like my life was in danger. Um, and so I just, I was doing everything I could to make sure that I was going to come out of this situation alive. Um, and I remember getting home and nobody else was home. My roommates must have been gone. And I just remember thinking to myself, like, shit, I think last night really happened and, you know, what's going to happen now? And I had known another woman who worked at SAFE. That's kind of how I knew SAFE was a resource in the community of Laramie. Um, so I just, I Googled the phone number and I called and it actually turned up to be the woman who I knew. Um, and she took me to the hospital um, to do an examination. And... Um, yeah, it just kind of continued from there. After that, I had an emergency session with my therapist, and that's when we ended up calling the police. And shout out to Detective Gerdes. I'm supposed to call him Officer Gerdes now, but Detective <laughs> is just always in my mind. Um, he he is a true example of how a cop's reaction to a sexual assault can make all the difference. I remember him looking at me after I told him just barely what happened. Uh, and his first response was, I believe you. And that that matters so much. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, we do our little detective thing. We drive by the house, what I think was the house, what I thought was the truck. And um, they brought his roommates in for questioning. And I think, you know, a day or two later, he had fled. And then he hid the gun in the grill of a friend of his. Um, I'm trying not to do names because I know Laramie's a small town. Yeah. Um, but uh, but he had fled. But then I think a day or two later, they got him at Wyotech and arrested him. Um, he was charged with kidnapping, rape at the first degree, using a firearm while committing a felony, and then um, aggravated robbery. I think that's the last one. But basically... The gun he used, he stole. Um, So now we're kind of in this court process, and it's a mess. You know, I remember that that those months were also kind of a blur for me, but I remember being so anxious any time I got a phone call because when you're going through the court process, you never know what's going to happen. You never know if the evidence you have isn't good enough or if they're going to come up with a good 
you know, arguments, la di da. And so I just, it took me a while to not be so anxious. And I would just, every time I'd get a call, I just, nope, wouldn't answer it. Um, and this was, the court process, I think, was probably the, the most difficult thing I went to. So Farron, who does this podcast with Libby, was my advocate. Um, and she was great, you know. Sharon, you really, you really helped me through such a shitty time. Yeah. And I don't think people understand how tricky the court process really can be. Um, and I remember the one name I will give is Joshua Merciel. He was the prosecuting attorney at the time. We actually tried to hire our own attorney, but because of logistics, and I was a victim of the state, I had to use Joshua Merciel. And I remember it was either the first or second time I ever met him, walked into this office, I sat down with my advocate, and he came in, still standing, didn't even say hi, and looked at me and says, so I think we're going to lose. And so that's basically how my work with him went. You know, I was ready. I had a fire inside, and I wanted to fight. I wanted to get up on the stand. I wanted to go all the way to trial, to speak my truth, to look him in the face, say what happened to me. But juries are unpredictable. Yeah. Um, eventually, after a couple months of kind of going back and forth, they wanted to do a plea bargain, and I, I said, you can plead to the rape because that's what you did see. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was, like, the biggest charge, I don't know, 40-plus years, something like that. I think the kidnapping was maybe bigger, but um, they said, no, no, no. And the reason we – one of the main reasons trial wasn't really an option anymore and we, we decided to go with a plea bargain is because when he hit the gun – I mean, he, he's a hardened criminal – he comes from Washington, D.C. He has a criminal background. Um, he wiped the gun, and so they could not find any of my DNA on the gun. They also couldn't find any of the owner's DNA on the gun, but, you know, trials are tricky and juries are juries are tough. Um, so we ended up doing a plea bargain, long story short, of him pleading guilty to stealing the gun he used, and that is what he went to jail to prison on. Um, he got eight to something years. I don't even remember. Um, but I do know that this year he is technically eligible for parole. Um, but because he was not charged with any of the crimes he committed against me, I am not considered a victim. So I am not allowed to speak at the parole hearing. Um, fun fact. And so... This begins, that kind of, like, wrapped everything up for me and kind of in, in between, towards the end of this, kind of begins my journey into advocacy. I just, I had this fire, and I needed to speak. And the more that I learned throughout my own court process, the more that I learned through working with these advocates, the more I learned how fucked things are right now. Um, so it, I learned about, um, the bill that had come up for, I think they were working on it for five or six years. Um, it was to close the gap. So in Wyoming, if you were a victim of domestic violence or stalking, you were able to get a civil protection order, but not if you were sexually assaulted. So this bill 
aimed to close that gap and to allow survivors of sexual assault to get a civil protection order against their perpetrator. Um, so I testified to the legislature of Wyoming several different times. You know, kind of goes back and forth. The House says yes. The Senate says no. Fix this. Um, but eventually we got it passed, and it became law in 2015. And I heard that it just got extended to a year. So now you can um, apply for your protection order for a year. Um, that's really awesome. And that, that was kind of my first taste of advocacy. And I think doing that and, and sharing my story with all of these people who eventually made a law thanks to it, really helped me feel empowered and it really helped me heal on such a cellular level. You know, I was telling this to people, they were listening, they were believing, and then they were making a change. Um, and so that's kind of where I am now. So I was a teacher and I decided recently to go back to school and finish my degree. So I'll actually graduate in May with my bachelor's degree in human development and family studies with a concentration in leadership. And the goal is to run a nonprofit or run for office, basically change the world, no big deal. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, yeah, that's kind of where I am today. And, you know, my along with Farron and my advocates and the support of close family and friends, um, my therapist really helped me a lot. There's a technique called EMDR, and it really helps to kind of make the trauma that's just right in front of your of your face. It makes helps make it into a memory. You can store it, and it's just not on your mind constantly. That really helped me. And then um, meditation, I've also found to be really helpful. Uh, it's helped me love my body again and love my life again, because after you're raped, you feel so disconnected from your body and from other people even. Um, and so those are kind of the things that I've done to uh, aid in my healing journey. Yeah, it seems like you do a lot of things to really take care of yourself and surround yourself with people who love you and support you in that, which I think is key, right? Like, it's Self-care. so important. Yeah. I can't even tell you how many people I lost after my rape. Um, it sounds crazy, but people run the other way when they feel uncomfortable. Yeah. So I lost friends. I lost family members. Um, don't ask me why. Maybe they felt triggered themselves. Maybe they felt angry. Maybe they didn't believe me. Maybe it was just too much to handle. Um so I learned very quickly that it's important to keep the good people around and just, you know, put my energy toward the people who support me and the people who love me. That's all I have energy for. That's what I have the capacity for, you know? Yeah. I, I thought it was... And I moved to Fort Collins. That was Angie. probably the best decision I've ever made. Met a great guy. Yes, my soulmate. We got married in October. He has a beautiful daughter. She's five, so it's been really fun to just have a family. And, and, you know, I moved to Fort Collins to start my adult life, and I feel like I've really been able to do that. And this town and this community has really brought so much healing to my life. I'm so, so thankful. 
I think it's really interesting that when we backtrack and talk about his sentencing, um, yeah, I was telling because some of the women who work at Safe Now obviously didn't work here when this happened to you, um, mm-hmm. and it still surprises me that the judge let you testify or let you read a victim impact statement at that sentencing. I think that's awesome that he did, but it it surprises me that that judge let you do that. Um, Really? And I think that was really powerful. I do feel really uh, grateful for that too, because yeah, I guess I kind of breezed over that thing. I remember and things I don't remember, you know, Um, but yeah, at sentencing, I was able because since we did the plea bargain for stealing the gun, I was technically not a victim anymore. Um, but the judge did allow me to have, um, like, a, lo- a written statement that I was able to read, and that that was so empowering. And my only wish is that I would have turned around and just looked him in the eyes, and he could see me and see that he did not break me. Yeah. Um, but my soul has done that to his soul, so it's okay. He knows he didn't break me. Yeah, that was really brave. Um I mean, it's so, it takes so much courage for survivors to face their abusers or their perpetrators um, at all. And in a courtroom, that's got to feel like a lot of pressure and a lot of weight. And um, I just remember thinking, like, that's really incredible, you know, because I think you were the first as sad as it is, like, we don't, we didn't see very many survivors of sexual assault even get to that point where they were, you know, speaking at a sentencing because either, you know, perpetrators were acquitted or victims, you know, Mm -hmm. a lot of victims just don't report. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I, you were, you know, you were the first person that I had really worked with to that point. And I just remember thinking that, you know, really being in awe of your courage. um, Thank you. To it's face definitely him. a scary thing. And yeah. Honestly, the worst part was waiting outside before court starts and seeing his mom and his wife right. across the way. And I have to go in and tell everybody what he did to me. Right. Um, yeah, that, that was um, a day for sure. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And then I remember being with you on campus when you testified the first time mm-hmm. in front of the legislators. And I just remember you had, by that point, made this decision that you were going to tell your story and you weren't going to sugarcoat it to nope. prevent people from having a reaction. And I just remember watching their faces when you said what you said. Mm-hmm. And again, being like, wow, she's really brave. Um, and I really believe that we would not have had that protection order bill passed without you, Aaron. I really think it took you, like they had to look at you and justify to themselves why they wouldn't give that protection to you, you know? Right, um, right. And that's that's... That's a whole different ball game than just a bunch of people, you know, trying to lobby for this bill when you have to face a survivor and justify, like, the fact that this woman doesn't deserve to be protected from her perpetrator. That's different, you know? Right. Thank you. Yeah, and I think I didn't, 
I don't think I knew quite the weight of it when I went into that conference room at UW to tell them my story. You know, I was just like, yes, I need to tell everybody. Yeah. Um, and, and then it, you know, gratefully became like this big thing and, and it passed and they listened and, and it, I think it hit their heartstrings. How could it not, you know? And I think another issue that Wyoming has a lot is, oh, it can't happen here. It's a small mm-hmm. town. It's safe. Yeah. Um, and race does not discriminate. It doesn't discriminate on age, gender, race, socioeconomic status. Race happens everywhere. One in four women will be sexually assaulted in their lifetime. And women 18 to 24 who are in college are one of the most vulnerable populations. So in a college town especially, it's important to start educating ourselves on the reality and, you know, what happens. Yeah. Yeah, and I really um, am so grateful for the experience you had with law enforcement. You had such a positive experience mm-hmm. with... Um, I'm so grateful for that, too. I've heard so many horror stories of just the cops show up and they say, you know, sorry, we can't do anything, and they leave. Right, right. And, you know, I think that so much has, and I think if we talked, I think if, you know, the chief of police or some of the the leadership in law enforcement were here right now, they would agree with me when I say that we've come so far since your assault happened. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I really f- felt like Detective Gertis was, you know, he truly believed in you and believes in survivors and I think that is so powerful and so important because it can really you know that's really the first point of contact that a victim of a crime has with the criminal justice system and it can go well or it can go really poorly and and it you know it can make or break a victim's ability to participate in an investigation and you know his the way he treated you um, and believed you was really, mm-hmm. you know, was really important. Yeah, he treated me with dignity and respect, and I think that that also helped me feel brave enough to tell people. Right. Yeah, because you were, I mean, you've obviously come so far since, like, the first day I met you, but mm-hmm. you were always very... You know, just hell bent on telling your story, you know, and mm-hmm. and I'm I was really glad that you, at least when I was around you, you didn't talk about this being your fault, you know, that you knew that what happened to you was not okay and was not your fault, and that was in part, some of that might have been because of the experience you had with law enforcement and the fact that, you know, you were validated from the beginning by everybody you came into contact with. But I thought that was really, I thought that was really, like, beneficial to your healing, you know? Oh, I know it. And that's that's kind of why I did this, this preface of, like, doesn't matter what I was drinking. Doesn't matter what I was wearing. Yeah. Um, because it wasn't my fault. I am not the one who made the choice to put a gun to the back of someone's head and rape them. That was not my choice. That was his choice. 
Yeah. Um, so it's just, it's so important to, for survivors to know that they did everything they could have done to be safe in that situation, no matter what type of sexual assault situation they're in. It's never their fault. What do you think, you know, if you could tell survivors, like, some advice, what would be your biggest piece of advice to a survivor after they've been, you know, after they've been sexually assaulted, whether it was years ago or yesterday, what's your biggest piece of like advice or what helped you the most? Yes. Um, I would have to say therapy. Yeah. Find a therapist who is trauma informed um, and lean on them. It, therapy's hard. It, it brings stuff up and you feel raw and you feel tired, but that's how you heal. And that's where, that's where you can do the hard work, but you can move forward with your life. Um, and so find a good therapist and then also lean on your social supports. If you have family members or a partner who believes you and loves you and supports you, lean on them. Yeah, that's so important. Mm-hmm. Because you shouldn't go through something like that all alone. No, never. Yeah, and I agree with you. I mean, every time we have interactions with sexual assault survivors or, you know, any any domestic violence sexual assault survivor um, or, you know, somebody who's been through trauma, um, you know, we push at SAFE really hard for people to go to therapy Um because we've found that it seems to be key in in that healing journey, you know? It is. I know that if I hadn't had the most amazing therapist that I did have, I would be in such a different place in my life right now. Yeah, I believe but that. But it would not be a pretty place. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I believe that. Because it's, I've seen that with so many survivors, that that is really... That's really, really important. And I think that you, too, what was, you know, what was maybe helpful for you, too, was that you surrounded yourself after that with other survivors, right? Like, you built relationships with other people who had been through sexual violence and sexual assault and kind of developed this, like, sisterhood with some of those people. Um, Oh, yeah. I think that was really important, too. I know it was. One of my best friends now is, you know, a young woman that I met in this support group. Yeah. Um, that uh, UW offered. Yeah. Yeah, I I think that that um, having that, like, network and that circle, because nobody knows what this is like except for, you know, people who have been through it. Um, right. And so... I think that I, I I know that was huge for you. So very huge. Yeah, it, all of it, all the combination of of all of the different supports that I sought out and that I had in my life or put in my life helped me to heal. And I mean, I'm not gonna lie, it, healing is a lifelong journey. I'm still it's five years later. My five-year new year anniversary was the end of March mm-hmm. um, and it's still hard but it's hard in a different way and I know that the first two years was for me personally very very rough 
Um, but it would have been a lot worse had I not made these good friendships and had I not told my story unashamed and without caring if I made anybody else uncomfortable because this happened to me and this happens to other people so often. Yeah. I remember how proud I felt of you when they chose you as a, as a woman of distinction. Do you remember that? I do. I have my plaque hanging up. That was so cool. When was that? Like 2015 or something? Yeah, it was a couple years afterwards. Yeah, that was. I was still in Laramie. Yeah, you were. And you, you know, got up in front of a whole room full of people again and told your story. And that was pretty. And that was a funny one, too, because, you know, it was it was this like gala type thing. And the other women of distinction that were honored had done so many other things way different from me. And I was the last person to talk before the keynote. And I almost, I had anxiety beforehand because all of those stories were happy and hopeful and I did this, yay. And and mine was like, this is, you know, was, I felt like it was a, a bit of a downer. Um, and so I was feeling really anxious to tell my story in that situation and to be given this honor. Um, but I'm proud of myself for doing it, and I think that everybody in the room really appreciated me sharing my story. Oh, I think so. Because it's an inspiring story, and it's so many people share that story, you know? Yeah. You know, even if, even though all of, all survivors have a unique, a unique story to tell, like we said, there's like this kinship, you know, in seeing yourself in that person and yeah. And there were other people in that room for sure who that resonated, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. What would you say to survivors who have, who are dealing with, you know, having been sexually assaulted and maybe they haven't reached out for support Um, and they're just kind of coming to terms with that for themselves. Do you have, you know, words of wisdom for them? Yeah. Um, I think, I think it's really important if you're not ready to tell your family, if you're still trying to process and sort out what's happened, what just happened to you, you don't want to tell your friends a really great way to get, support in a non-judgmental, confidential way is to reach out to your local uh, center, whether you're in Laramie in that SAFE project, whether you're in Fort Collins in that SAVA or Crossroads, um, because advocates are trained. They're trained to know trauma, and they're trained to be there for you. Um, And so that that's a great way to do it. And then also if you're on social media, finding online support groups can be really helpful too. If you're not quite ready to, to kind of come out in real life, but you need to express yourself. I think that social media is a great place to do that on when they have support groups like that. Yeah, that's a really good idea. And that kind of, that's also like a, maybe feels a little safer too. Yeah. And you can also see it, other people's stories and sometimes it helps me to just 
see what other people have gone through, I can relate, and I don't even need to comment or say anything. I just get that validation for myself, you know. I think survivors really need to be validated. Yeah, and I I agree. And I, I think that, you know, having that support group, whether it's online or in person, is that's probably, you know, the best way because, like you said, other survivors know what you've gone through. Right. And, you know, people who haven't gone through it and who aren't trained therapists might say something that is well-intentioned but is actually more harmful yeah. than anything. Um, and that can really hurt. And I know that our friends and family don't mean to hurt us, but, you know, not everybody always knows the right words. And, I mean, what words do you use when your loved one tells you a trauma that happened to them? It's hard It's hard to have the right words. Yeah. I can imagine that it would be, you know really difficult as a parent to have your child disclose that to you or, um, you know, someone you love, that would be really hard. So yeah, maybe asking on those support groups for advice on how those people, um, went about telling their social supports and, Mm -hmm. you know, getting that, that help there. I think that's a great idea. Yeah. I still have people because when we were doing the bill, uh, there was we made a Facebook page for it, and I still have people reach out to me probably once every three months or so, some random person that I don't even know, and they Facebook message me needing support, and I'm always touched when someone sees my name through the page, through the news articles, and finds me and reaches out to me. Um, it's, it's so important for us to connect with each other, and I know that... Um, Male survivors are just as validated, but I'm I'm just speaking with women, mm-hmm. and it's we're in a time where we need to be there for each other as women. We need to build each other up. We need to support each other. We need to believe each other. Um, and I crave that. I crave that connection and that support for each other. Yeah, absolutely. I do too. Totally. I hear what you're we saying. All do. Yeah, for sure. Well, I have to say, you know, I've been here a long time, and when people ask me my most memorable client, you know, I always talk about you because I think you're such Mm -hmm. an amazing example of, A, survivor advocacy and survivors who go on to feel really passionate and do something with that passion after they've healed and as part of their journey, and B... I think you are an example of the fact that a criminal justice outcome is not the end-all be-all to your healing process. You know, I think so many survivors feel, and I know you felt this way, so defeated when their, their case either doesn't go forward or, you know, the perpetrator isn't, isn't held accountable, is acquitted, or pleads to a different, you know, a lesser charge. Um, right. And it can feel really invalidating and traumatic for that to happen. But I have been so inspired by you because, you know, we know that sexual assault crimes are so underreported and they're also very difficult to prosecute. And so it's really important that survivors 
and advocates know that there are that the criminal justice system cannot be our only means to healing, right? Um, oh, totally. There, there is life after rape. Right, right. Yeah, and you have shown that, and you know, it's just really, it's really great to see, and it's so inspiring for all of us who have worked with you and who know you. I know the women at the coalition feel the same way. Like we are all just so grateful for you and so glad to know you. And we love you so much. Um, you, I'm humbled and I love you all so much. Yeah. You're just, you're just super and you have a beautiful life and I'm just so happy for you. So thank you. I'm happy too. I, I feel like I glow now. Yeah, I agree. Good. <laughs> you just look happy. You just radiate happy, which you want that for people that you love, you know, and yeah, it's clear that you are there. So I'm just glad to see it and glad to know you and glad to be a part of your journey. Well, thank you, Sharon. I'm glad I have you. Well, thank you so much, Erin, for talking to us and, um, you know, being brave once again and sharing your story the way that you did. Um, yeah, of course. You know, we really think that, you know, we sit on this podcast and we can talk for hours about sexual assault and domestic violence, but it really does mean more to have it come from, you know, a survivor or someone who, you know, has a close connection or has experienced it. And so, um, but I also understand that that's really that can feel really scary and really intimidating to tell your story. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that's, there's a lot of reasons why people wouldn't want to do that. So, um, Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. So we really, really appreciate your voice always. Well, thank you. Um, Happy sexual assault awareness month. I know. Happy sexual assault awareness month. It's my favorite month of the year. (laughs) Yeah. It's one of mine too. And it's so busy for us at SAFE. Oh, I can imagine. Um, But it's so important. It's really important. Um, And so, you know, we were really glad to be able to do this this podcast. I know that I had talked to I had talked to Aaron when we first started this and said, "Hey, do you ever think you might be on a you know want to be on our podcast?" And so I'm really glad that we could have it work for April. So, yes, perfect timing. Perfect timing. (laughs) And if you know people who are listening. Um, you know, if this resonates with you and you, you know, need to reach out for support, even if you're not in Laramie, you can call us at our hotline. It's um, 307-745-3556. And there is always a trained advocate 24 hours a day, seven days a week, um, 365 days a year to talk to you and to hook you up with resources, like Aaron said, in your community who, um, you know, can provide support, um, and get you to who you need to, you know, to get to for therapy and stuff like that. Um, so reach out to us anytime. Um, if you're a survivor and you're interested in sharing your story, um, you know, you can email it to us. You can visit our website for, for information on how to get in touch with us to send us a, an email with your story or send us ideas for stories in the future. We would love to hear from you. Um, so yeah, until, until next time. Bye. Happy spring.